0: It's one thing to say that we need to move away from fossil fuels. It's another thing altogether to build a plan to do it. Indeed, for many years in Australia, plenty of politicians and quite a few fossil fuel companies said it couldn't be done. But can it? Is it possible to build a plan to close down coal mines in a town while ensuring those workers get jobs? Is it also possible to have that kind of economic transition also lead to more resources and broader economic and social justice in the process? And can the whole thing result in a stronger economy where more people are having a say? Today's Changemaker Chat is with Alex Cassie. Alex worked for the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union in Collie in Western Australia and helped plan and lead the transition of the coal mines in that town. Today, she describes how they did it. She talks about the local conditions that created opportunities for their work, the power of the union's leadership, the role of the state government, and the power of place. She talks about the wins for the workers, but also how this kind of work is ongoing as it seeks to create a broader vision for economic and social justice in Collie. For anyone interested in what it takes to actually end our reliance on fossil fuels, this story is for you. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats. Conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. Changemakers also runs an organising school where you can sharpen your skills to make change in the world. All of the details are on our website where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Welcome to the Changemakers podcast. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. I'm happy to have you here as well. So first off, you know, we have lots of different changemakers walk through the doors of the changemaker chats, I'd love you to to let our audience know a little bit about what make, what do you do in the world that causes change? Sure thing. So I was originally a
1: community campaigner. At uni, I started a campaign against local stop and search laws. And I found all of these people were coming forward to help Huge amounts of strangers who wanted to letterbox and door knock, uh, But also there were some people with institutional power, like the now Federal Minister Matt Keogh came forward to help. And most importantly for me, the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union State Secretary Steve McCartney. And we won that campaign and it taught me a lot about how to connect community, uh, union and institutional power. And then I actually went and became a bureaucrat. I, I got a job in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and I spent eight years in the department, including four in Canberra. And by the end of that, I'd really learned that a government can say that something is a priority, but unless a public servant and resources are assigned to work on it, it's not happening. And so now I incorporate that into my theory of change.
0: Excellent. So you've worked on two different sides of the of the change coin in a sense what I'm hearing is that you've you you've you've done the sort of the grassroots work and then you've done the work in politics to sort of be able to understand how how change works in both of those spaces but what i'm interested in in knowing you know we always and we, we're going to get into the work that you've done around transition and the specific topics of, around climate change and economic change a little bit later on but before we get into that i, I wonder if you could share there amazing things you've done both community campaigning and policy work Why did you choose that path? Like, why was that of interest to you? You could have done anything else, but you chose this. Why?
1: I follow things that I'm interested in and where I can have difference. And then I kind of came to this role through a long process. i had been volunteering for the Wilderness Society and 350 and Australian Conservation Foundation. And then in 2019, I was um, overseas living in Mexico City and I was due to move back to Perth, Western Australia. And I was really worried about finding meaningful work that was close to home. But then I was able to work as a climate change negotiator remotely from Perth. Um, And I was really excited about doing that at first, but it kind of turned out to be not all that I'd hoped it would be at that time in 2019. And then one night I was having yet another frustrated cry at the kitchen table when I got a text message from a comrade that I'd made through the Search for Your Rights campaign that the political organiser...
0: That, that was the community campaign. Yes. That, yeah, you're yeah. Doing
1: that the political organiser job at the union was going and that Steve, who remembered me from that campaign, wanted me for the role. And I was really unsure about it. I was carving a bit of a path for myself in, in the department, but Steve convinced me by talking to me about the union's ambitions for having the real first Just Transitioning Collie. And he said, here's your opportunity to make a real difference somewhere. And given what I had seen and was at that time experiencing of our efforts to do this overseas, I thought maybe Collie could actually be an example domestically where we could show that you could close coal and actually have good outcomes for a town and a community and that we could take that example on tour and show that it could be done.
0: And so... I love the idea that you had to go all the way to Mexico City to then come back and like you're like the prodigal daughter, right? Returning to to Western Australia to, to find the answers. Can you tell us so climate change? You said you did all this different forms of volunteering early on, in Australian Conservation Foundation and and other organisations. Why climate change for you? I actually
1: have a marine biology degree originally, and for me, it originally was entirely about the places that I love the environmental the beach the oceans down south in Denmark where I love to snorkel we started getting blue bottles a few years ago and the ocean didn't used to be warm enough to sustain them Uh, it's it's just that aspect of seeing the places that I love disappear and change but I would say that my motivations around this work and just transition work have actually changed quite a bit because of working in
0: college. So like I feel like let's open the uh, open the doors and allow our everyone listening today to find out a little bit more about Collie because people probably don't know much about Collie where it is, what it looks like, why it's related to the question of climate and transition. Can you take our listeners there tell us tell us what it's like and 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 why it's so important Of course
1: so. Collie in southwest WA is a small town two hours south of Perth. It's got about 6,000 people in it and with those 6,000 people, there's two coal mines and three power stations and an alumina refinery. And the coal mines are only used for powering Western Australia and they're not exported. But the the power stations in Western Australia are actually still, well, two out of three of them are actually still state-owned and we have a state-run grid in the southwest of Western Australia. And Collie is actually this beautiful place and in my very first week of the job that I took I went to Coley for the first ever time and I was driving up this absolutely beautiful green hill with all this state forest and there's signs for wilderness hikes and swimming holes and all those things and I had a I went to a meeting I had a meeting with workplace delegates and I was trying really hard to get off on the right foot. Um, I think I had a brand new AMW polo and I still had my diplomats leather bag. And I'm sitting in the Coley Fields Hotel, which is a hotel that was established 125 years ago when the when the town was originally um, settled and colonised. And I'm talking to these workplace delegates, workplace leaders in the coal industry about how Coley can be a great example of a just transition and Jay who I now know very well and luckily luckily uh, came to trust me after this Jay kind of had this look on his face slightly skeptical um, maybe a little sympathetic for me coming in with these ideas and and he says to me that the issue is not about a job it's not about working in coal it's about having work that's close to home and and all of these guys, they're skilled, they're highly skilled workers who are really sought after in Western Australia. They could go FIFO or drive in, drive out any day of the week and get a high income, but what they actually want is meaningful work close to home. And I realise I'm sitting there in the Collarfields Hotel with my, you know, soft hands, soft diplomat's hands clenched under the table, stressed about what these guys think about me, and I realise that the, the problem that they have is the exact same problem that I had in Mexico. How do we get to do work close to the people that we love and how is our society and our economy set up to do that and that's a union fight and I was in it and it changed my motivation from that moment
0: yeah wow so that's so so it's a beautiful place it's got these coal mines that uh, that feed the the power system in 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 western australia I, and it's got a huge community well, I guess uh, how big is the community in Colly? Like, how many people live there?
1: Well, there's about six thousand people there, but the um, the workplaces there are also really critical workplaces for the broader Southwest. So you've got Bunbury, which is down the hill um, on the flatland, um, as the people from Colly say, and Bunbury is a bit of a um, a manufacturing and in- industrial hub in and of itself. It's got a big port. It's probably not that dissimilar to when we think about Musclebrook and Newcastle, for example, and much like that, these are communities where people are really proud of the role that they've had in the state for so long um, and there are quite a lot of the union members there from the Manufacturing Workers Union and the Services Union, Electrical Trade Unions and the CFMEU. They're, they're people who have been leaders in their community for a long time and with the change of the economy there, all of that Potentially, could go away. And that's terrifying. I think the first, you know, six months that I was going to Coley in 2019, um, people actively told me to stop talking about it because every time I got told, every time you open your mouth and mention this, uh, house prices go down. Uh, and then we reflected on that a couple of years later when people were then complaining that house prices had gone up so much it was hard to buy a house and I had to just take a moment <laughs> and say, so, well, think about how, where we've come from that time. <laughs> but the um, the difference, I think, between Coley and the eastern states is that because it's not export coal and because it's in a state-owned grid, um, the government has actually been able to set out a plan and the distributed energy resource roadmap um, is an important part of that and it's to deal with the fact that there's this huge uptake in solar across Western Australia. We've got solar and gas now... Um, playing a much, much bigger part in the West Australian energy. And also they um, they have to plan for the fact that coal, frankly, is very hard to switch on and off, whereas solar can create surges that then might create blackouts. But because it's state-owned still, largely thanks to the work of the Australian Services Union in campaigns during the Liberal government eras, um, we can actually set out a plan for that. And the reason why the union got involved was in 2019, there was an announcement that the first unit closures of Muja would be happening in October 2022, and then there was not not yet a determined timeline for further closures, but everyone could kind of see the writing on the wall then. Um, Since that time, the entire coal industry has now been mapped out for closures in Western Australia, and the state-owned power stations will all be closed by
0: 2030. Yeah, wow. Now, I want to get into this discussion about the the union and 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 why they wanted to do something you know why they wanted to, to take on this challenge. But just for people who aren't from Australia or don't know much about the union movement, I think it's probably worth you... So you've mentioned a couple of unions. The union you worked for was the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, um, and Steve McCarthy, who's, who's the leader of that union. And then some other unions, including Australian Services Union and the Construction, Forestry, Mining and Energy Union, Mining Division, all these beautiful acronyms that, that, you know, if you're in the union movement, you can roll it off the tongue. But if you're not in the union movement, you're sort of like an alphabet city of confusion. That's
1: one of the overlaps with bureaucracy. You get really
0: used to acronyms. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> see, see, some things stayed the same. That's nice, but I wonder. you, you, you could just. I mean, I, could, I know of those unions as very progressive unions, and you know, having a having a long history of of good fights around progressive social policy and economic policy in Australia. But can you give give our listeners a little bit of a context? I mean, there weren't just any unions. These unions, what were they like? Like, what kind of organisations were stumping up to the table?
1: So the MW and Steve McCartney, the secretary, is a is a socialist left union. And the key to our theory of change in the AMW is that we see the union as having three pillars. The industrial, which of course is the workplaces and having strong workplaces with high union density and members who are willing to take action is at the base of every union. But then we also have a political arm. We're affiliated to the Labor Party, to the left of the Labor Party, and I'm not afraid to use it. I think could be a good way to, to sum that up. And that's an incredibly important part of the Southwest in Western Australia as well, because the um, Labor Party is in government here and the local members of parliament who represent that area are affiliated to the AMW. And then the third pillar is community. And that recognizes the fact that we use industrial and political to actually make our societies better. The way that we talk about change in the AMW is about not just workplace change, but societal change and lifting social minimums and making sure that the economy works for us and not the other way around. And then the Australian Services Union is also a good left union. And it was the Australian Services Union and the AMWU in particular who kicked off the Just Transition Planning Collie because Synergy, the state-owned power power system uh, operators, entered into a memorandum of understanding with the ASU to make sure that the power station operators who are represented by the ASU would be redeployed in any eventuality of closures and from the get-go the aim was to expand that and actually make the state and those operators and then also the private contractors and private coal mine owners in the city in the town rather have a responsibility for those workers and not just for those workers, but for the community. And it's that expansive view of the role of both unions and of the state that's really underpinned our approach to the just transition.
0: Mm, and what I'm hearing in this also is the role of history. Like actually what happened post-2019 and the work that you, you became part of in in Collie actually had a long history, had a long history in the way in which the, the union worked, but also what you did for the coal workers had a lot to do with other battles, you know, you, th- your battle learnt from other battles with, in terms of the ASU and the and, and the workers, the retail workers and other workers in synergy, which I just think is really important is that there's, there's this really feel of localism in a way, that there's quite particular and contextual feel to how the transition work Absolutely. is sort of set up to work.
1: And and Collie is actually the home of one of the longest running disputes in the coal mine in Australia and it's very recent. Only a few, few years ago, Griffin coal mine dropped all of its workers back to the minimum standards and then had a lockout of workers. So it was a it was a town that knew how to act industrially already and was not afraid to to be proud unionists and to take that action into other parts of their lives.
0: Yeah, I just think um, the the place nature, you know, the, the, this particular nature of that fight. I, I know. I feel like that's already a lesson that I've got out of, uh, of, of what you've described. But let's move it forward, right? So the union had a plan. Get, let's take us into into that plan. Like, what, what 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 did the AMWU seek to do in order to be able to expand what had happened with Sydney? to make sure that the workers were going to have um, a stake and, a, and economic control, in a sense, through this process of, of coal closure?
1: Yeah. So um, the way that I often think about it is that you need you need the power, the union power, the political power and the community power, to get into the room with the decision makers or, you know, change who the decision makers are. But you get into the room with the decision makers and then you actually have to be collaborative in your approaches and be the most useful person in the room with the right answers. That sounds a little underwhelming. I, I spent a lot of my early years as a campaigner telling people that the right answers aren't what makes change. The thing that's missing is that you need to you need to have the power to get in the room in the first place. There's no point having the right answers outside. So we pushed very hard for the establishment of a Just Transition Working Group and a Collie Delivery Unit. So Originally, the State Government made commitments around money and you know, deliverables, announceables and things like that, but there was a real demand to actually make sure that there was a Collie-based unit that would actually do this work. And one of the things that I think is quite interesting about that is that we identify quite early on that you really need the resourcing and the state government to be involved in that. So there is now a coli delivery unit that's out of the Department of Premier and Cabinet, so very central to government's priorities, that's based in coli. And then the Just Transition Working Group was established. That actually was established, I, I looked over some notes from this time not that long ago, and for the first, you know, months of that working group being established we weren't sure whether or not we were going to call it a just transition so it was really we got the structures we got that had all of the employers in the room the state government departments in the room different departments not just a representative from state government it had local council in the room and it had all the unions in the room and it was actually through Demanding that those decisions be made in town, but with all of those different voices coming from Perth and coming from government, that we could actually establish a way forward. And yeah. so we wanted to make sure we had the answers and that we had our view and we were saying our view loudly and clearly in every single room that we could be in.
0: So I love this. So so you know, if the mountain won't come to you, you bring the mountain to Mohammed, like you guys drew Perth to Collie in order for that sort of specific and local conversation to happen. And that was like and that was like the early part of the demand, like a statutory draw of of state power into the community to take responsibility for working out how this transition was going to occur.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is quite funny because, you know, there were times when I would feel bad about being a person who's driving down from Perth to have this meeting, but the, the fact is it meant that all of the local representatives had very, very monthly meetings with high up bureaucrats in the department of training workforce and development and the department of jobs tourism science and innovation and the south regional tafe and the energy policy wa and we had them there and i think that the there was a there's a genuine back and forth there and influence from the town and from the people who are actually making um and creating policy and you have to Organise. we quite often think about as organizers organizing communities and making sure that communities feel empowered and and collie as i said collie has a history of of feeling empowered but this is an incredibly difficult policy situation to be in and you actually need a secretariat you need the people who are going to sit down and do the work and Uh, we spent a year writing the Just Transition plan and I think we went through two college Delivery Unit chairs in that time because they had come perhaps with the misunderstanding that they were there to manage us rather than the other way around. (laughs) Um, But... We spent a year writing the plan and now we're doing the plan. And I think that that's that's actually something that that gets skipped over a bit when we think about how to do these things.
0: I I think you're absolutely right. People don't focus on the how nearly enough. They focus on the what. And it's all about the process of being involved in the construction of the plan, the construction of of change. Tell us about how the workers and the community were like involved. I know that there were all all these committees. What did you, over this year when you wrote this plan, how were people involved? So
1: all of the unions, um, are represented in the working group, and there's and then there's the the subcommittees, which uh, there's the four priorities. We had particular interest in two of the priorities, which was ass- ensuring maximum opportunity for affected workers and diversification of the economy. For us, that was the you know bring new industry to town, train people to go down into the new industry. That was the be all and end all. Um, we as a union have a um, delegates committee that's formed from across all of the workplaces that are affected, and. Um, that took a little while, and I think probably was a good gauge of the different levels of interest and awareness amongst different workplaces at that time. Because obviously, the people who came from Moogerah Power Station, which already had a closure announced, were there from the get-go. But then actually making re- people realise that this this was something that not only will but perhaps should affect the whole economy was quite difficult and took a little while. But every single time we had a working group meeting, we would meet with the delegates and make sure that the delegates understood all of the questions and had an input into what our possible answers were. That had a really particular time of importance when we started ensuring that contractors at MUJA were included in Just Transition Plans because, as we all know, in the modern economy, Um, a good chunk of workers are actually contractors and it turned out that that wonderful memorandum of understanding that had been written didn't include a third of the workforce because they weren't directly employed by Synergy. We had to take about probably eight months of um, action inside the workplaces but then um, also the members writing letters and petitions to ministers that then we delivered to ministers simultaneously to the Synergy board um, which I think is a good demonstration of kind of how we just wanted to be in every room. Um, it shouldn't have been as hard as it was, but the fact of the matter is, we had a delegates committee who were empowered to feel like that was something that they could do not just in their workplaces, but beyond the workplaces as well. And that had a that had a good ongoing effect as well for lots of members in lots of workplaces to see, to see that they could be included in this as well.
0: But also, the thing that I think is is exciting is that you know. The full-time workers didn't necessarily need to see their fate as tied to the casual and contracted workers. You know, they didn't have to because they would still be okay. But they made a political decision to sort of stand for all of for everyone. That's, I mean, that how, was that hard. Like, or was, do people insist? Like, how did that develop? That that's uh, pretty extraordinary.
1: That does go to the solidarity between the ASU and the AMWU. So the ASU covers the Synergy Direct employees, and we had a really early union meeting in the coal in mining hall it was one of the earliest meetings that i had and i was quite terrified to be honest if any of the guys ever listened to this they'll probably say that they could tell that oh. um i'd written copious amounts of notes in preparation and it was freezing cold in the hall and they were, all the guys were doing that thing where they all stand around the back of the room and they got their arms crossed and oh. i was terrified and we had a joint meeting with the ASU and the AMW members and the ASU guys said, and they were already covered by the Just Transition plan, right? Like they'd already been told you'll get your one-on-one individualised plan, you're going to be supported for training, all the rest of it. And they were like, we're not doing it unless you guys are doing it. And having the, the guys from the ASU stand there and say that to the AMW guys really early on really changed the tone. It's not, it wasn't about getting your redundancy package or like just grabbing what you could and get it out. It was like, this is something that's going to apply for everyone three years on, it is applying for everyone. We're actually quite pleased because the state government's essentially building a mini TAFE in town to train everyone who's an affected worker.
0: Wow. But also, I wonder, again, because people wanted to live in Collie after the mines, right? The place mattered. It's maybe different if there's a fly in, fly out labour force in a mine in regional Queensland, the the camaraderie is potentially different. But here, people worked in the mines, they wanted to stay in the community after the mines, they want to be able to eyeball their mates and co-workers, you know, like, so I guess solidarity is is easier to create in that environment.
1: I think, to be honest, and this is perhaps going slightly off the topic, but I think FIFO work was partially motivated by a desire to crush unionism. um, When you've got a whole bunch of people who are hotbedding and put in direct competition with each other and told that, you know, you can go anywhere and it's all about your own skills. It's really it's really hard to actually feel solidarity with the people alongside you. And that's absolutely the case in Collie That and I think so Sean Emmett, who's one of our best members in the AMW, he was working at Monos during this time and he actually went FIFO because he was a bit annoyed about how he was being treated at that time you know I'm not speaking out of school but I don't want words in his mouth and then COVID hit and when he was up on the mines during COVID and he suddenly realized I don't want to be a FIFA working during COVID he called home and people in Collie were like come home we'll keep your job for you and I think that that is it's something worth fighting for like you know sometimes when we tear our hair out and go, oh, you know, how far away is okay to drive? Like, I mean, I'm going to be quite honest. Sometimes I go, hey, guys, surely you can commute to this job. It's just a little bit down the road. But then I sit back and I think, no, what they've got is worth fighting for. The town they've got is beautiful. The, the community they've got is wonderful. And the, and the work camaraderie is, is worth it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they're prepared to change the work that they're doing given... The role that coal is playing. They just want to do it in a way that doesn't sacrifice themselves in the process, hence the need for a plan and a just transition.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a bit of a trope sometimes, but <laughs> we did have to separate out the idea that coal was the only thing that could provide that opportunity. It's a coal town. It's called Collie because it's, it's about coal. But the other thing that really we have to remember is that the majority of members who work in these industries are experts in their field and they know what energy policy looks like. They know how many man hours it takes to make energy from coal as opposed to solar. And I think probably there were about half a dozen times where I went to Colly for a delegates meeting and the delegates were saying, have you heard about this new industrial development? This might be something that we could get into. Like, they're the experts they they know that there's different industries out there for them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so talk us through. Okay, so you you did this work, you came up with a plan, there's been a negotiation with the Premier, things shifted. How how is how did how did sort of things crystallize? How did how did all these arrangements crystallize? Um
1: I wish I could say that there was like a moment where we knew that things were working. Having been looking over my colleague diary recently, uh, I think that quite a lot of the time it was just it was after the fact that we could re- we realised that something was working. And I think for us one of the one of the biggest tests was the day that we knew that the Energy Minister and the Premier were going to Collie to announce the rest of the closures and it was only earlier this year and I don't think I would be talking out of school to say that Steve and I were driving down to Collie absolutely shitting ourselves. <laughs> about the announcement might go down. Um, hopefully I can say that. There's probably worse things I can say. Um, but uh, we were driving down and, and you know, we'd, we'd prepared for this. The delegates knew that something was coming. Every piece of information that we'd we'd been able to obtain throughout the, you know, whispers of the halls of power and all that sort of thing, we'd been passing on and we'd been pushing back and saying, you can't do these announcements until you have X, Y and Z. But then sooner or later the decision gets taken out of your hands and we drove down to collie and the energy minister and the premier um full credit to them um went to the workplaces to announce when the closures were happening and the way that the members responded and the pride that i felt in seeing the delegates up front putting the questions into the minister and, and all that sort of thing it was like they knew they they owned the process and then we went to the council chambers that afternoon and the councillors who, who you know, are involved in the just transition process could, could sit there and hammer off questions fully informed and totally across everything that was going on in energy policy and economic policy. And it it was just a huge sense of relief because it was really proof that the whole town had actually taken ownership of something that in a different circumstance possibly could have seen the energy minister run out on a rail.
0: Yeah, Wow, like I mean, it sounds like what was a process around economic transition became a process around democratization, where people just got involved in 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 policy. In what policy sounds so vague, like in actually making their future real, right? Like in in changing their future, like. It was the activation. So you didn't need to be there running it by that stage because actually people were running it for themselves.
1: Yeah. I mean, the local liaison officer, I think every everyone who's ever read theory about just transition say that, you know, you need to make sure you've got a local point of contact and that sort of thing. John, he's, he's a former... Coal delegate at Premier Coal, who's a former MW delegate at Premier Coal, and for example, people would kind of go, oh, I heard about this economic possibility, someone's thinking, because there's there's grants and and possibilities for getting support for setting up in Coal now, and people would say these things to me, and I'd say, go and talk to John, his office is <laughs> open, go and talk to John, and knowing that there was someone who our members respected and who was involved in that process, and who then was, he, like, it, it's a perfect demonstration of the fact that actually... It's not oppositional. You get people involved and you can make it work together.
0: And so tell me about your reflections. I mean, in, in Australia, like the, the work done in Collie, because of the conditions you've described with the premier, with the state-owned state-owned electricity sector, the fact that the, the mines are only produced, don't have export coal, it really is the most advanced just transition that we've seen. Like, what are your reflections if you were to think about, you know, what you did well, what you'd have done differently, where it needs to go next? What, what sort of insight? I mean, you're going to have there's going to be people listening to this podcast who are in places like in the Hunter and in Central Queensland who are going. Tell us the answers. Tell us the tips. What are those tips that you would want to pass on?
1: Well, the good the good thing is now the Southwest organizer and two of our delegates actually went to the Hunter last month to talk to people in the Hunter directly. And well, that um, is best I, rather I than say the that podcast. That's sure. A tip. Um, um, you know, make sure that people who, who, like, as I said at the start, I I, I realised why this was important to me, but it's really important to have people who for whom this is a, a, a living issue talk about that issue. I think some of my biggest reflections are around that the, the community did have a real sense of purpose and direction, and we spent some time originally working on kind of tourism and some, you know, beautification projects in the town to make people feel like things were moving and that the town is a place where people want to come and for a little bit i was worried about that because i was like we need to be talking about industry diversification but then in due course everyone in town was like yes we also want heavy industry and i, I think i probably could have saved myself a little bit of stress by actually trusting that pe- the community knew what they wanted as well um but the flip side of that is that the devil really is in the detail. Uh, you can have a community that knows what it wants and feel empowered, but if you do not create a connection between how that policy is actually created and implemented and not a connection that's like a drop-in from a minister, you know, as, as great as it is when the when the police come to town and... and All of the union members get their kids out in the union T-shirts in the photos. As great as that is, the thing that actually really makes the difference is having a structure, a government structure in place that weds the entire government to that. And it's not just a structure. Those people are people too. I ran into a former public servant who'd worked on the project two years after she left on a train and she was like, tell me how it's going. I want to know how it's going. So work with those people. They're not your enemy. They want good outcomes as well. And I think it is difficult and I have reflected a lot on the fact that we don't have... Export coal. So there's that, that different economic drag there. And I often joke to Eastern Staters, you know, a real lesson learned would be go back in time and don't privatise your power industries, which is not the most helpful tip. But if anyone hasn't, who's listening, don't do it. Um, <laughs> but I think that there are lessons that can be learned for others. And it's it's really about the fact that this takes time. but. Like planting a tree, the best time to do it was 10 years ago and the next best time is now. Don't be afraid to spend a year writing a good plan if you actually are going to do the plan.
0: Yeah. Go slow to go fast. Be a tortoise. It's okay. Like I think that sometimes when it comes to climate change in particular where the anxiety about the crisis means that we lose lose our, lose our heads sometimes in in the execution but actually from what you're saying is you've got to do it right to do it well.
1: Yes, because if you make a mistake, you set things back. Um, we did we've done surveys with our members throughout different periods of this there were some sometimes where I was very nervous because at the start we people had no expectations and we had to raise expectations of what could be achieved it's a real if you believe it you can achieve it project to just transition because if people aren't going to push for it then they'll take the easy redundancy money and they will never push for anything else but there was this horrifying period in kind of second year where we got a survey result where we'd raised everyone's expectations but their expect like everyone's hopes and the importance that they saw of it but they actually had not raised their expectations that we would actually succeed and I feel like that was a moment where I, I went oh we could lose this at any second but just having that ongoing flow of information and making sure people knew even when there wasn't a, an announceable or a deliverable yet that they knew all the time what we were working for is really important. No dual, no dual sources of, of information, just
0: transparency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Treat, treating people with the dignity they deserve as the people who are going to fight for, yeah. for the change. <laughs> crazy <know>? idea. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And just a final a final thought. This is an extraordinary campaign of, of workers being able to lead a transition, I think, in 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 a way where in, in in some other places around the country, people are are worried that this is possible, right? And and the Collie story shows it's possible. But I also think about you know what's to come next for Collie, right? In terms of other changes and transitions that need to, to happen there for for a, a sort of a just whole community to to emerge, where it's it's not only the workers in the coal. Coal affected workers, but the whole community being able to be lifted up through this process. What do you see going forward in terms of those broader transitions?
1: Absolutely. So I can't speak to the work that's specifically happening now because I'm now in another position, but I just I will say that the ambitions of the union to make sure that there's a there's a democratisation change is, is is very much there. We worked we we work closely with the Climate Justice Union in WA and Beyond Zero Emissions, and there, there's a real importance there to remember that a just transition doesn't just apply to the people who are currently working in the industry. Collie has, like many regional towns, worse unemployment and education income gaps than um, metropolitan Perth. And so we're really determined to make sure that when there's new industry come in, there's a there's a range of of jobs and training and opportunities there. But one of the things again, it you know that's, I I was talking to the members very early on about industry goals, and I was hammering the line. You know, we want jobs of equal pay. We want we want things that are the same level as what you've got now, and. And one of the members, I think it was Sean again, actually said to me that one of the things the town has been missing is that when the timber mill closed down, there were no entry-level jobs anymore. And they were keen to get entry-level jobs back. So if we could keep that on the list, that would be important. And it was just another reminder where I'm like, sometimes you go in saying what you think people want to hear and and really they have a much more expansive and ambitious view than you you think. So don't take people for granted.
0: Yeah, wow. What a fantastic way to leave the story. Don't take people for granted because they're going to make their future happen if they can just have a good plan and get organised. I love it. Thank you, Alex. Thank you to the AMWU as well for the work that's been done there and good luck, Collie, for the next steps in a big just transition. Thank you. I'm really happy to talk about it. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. This is Series 6, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Changemakers is produced by Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Wilkere. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories.